Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It was only a matter of time, wasn't it? Just a few hours after the government suspended Britain's extradition treaty with Hong Kong, the Chinese response has been swift and threatening. Uh, There are now dark warnings being issued about the UK interfering in China's affairs and threats that we will bear the consequences. Those are their words. If we continue uh, to, in more of their words, go down the wrong road. This morning, we will speak to Bob Seeley MP, who has consistently warned of the dangers of getting too close to China through the Huawei deal, and who has also been at the very forefront of conversations about how Britain should deal with any trade retaliation, or worse. The bottom line is that the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, has done precisely the right thing in firing diplomatic shots across China's bow. The big question is... What happens now? Are you prepared to live your life without owning anything made in China, without buying anything that comes to the sweatshops of Beijing and Wuhan? That could be what it will take. The question is, are you prepared to do it? 0344 499 1000 is the number. Coming up later on, we are talking public sector pay because, once again, the people who have no chance of losing their jobs are being rewarded with an inflation-busting pay rise because St. Chancellor Rishi Sunak wants to recognise the, quote, vital contribution made by the key workers of this country. Now, everyone would agree that nurses and police officers are getting more money, doctors perhaps as well, uh, maybe even teachers. But forgive me for not cheering uh, the people who are the upper paid and very well paid members of senior civil service jobs. Civil servant salaries have been going through the roof of late, and I know you may well be a civil servant sitting there working from home, getting very highly paid and getting very, very nicely looked after. Thank you very much indeed, with a decent pension and a great holiday package. But what the heck have they ever done to deserve a pay rise? Surely it's the private sector that will drive this economy out of the doom and gloom it finds itself in, and I'm really not interested in handing yet more money to people who don't need it instead of giving it to the people who actually do. Don't forget, there are still plenty of innocent people who have been caught up in this pandemic and this economic downturn who have not received one penny of compensation, one penny of furlough money or one penny of a tax rebate from this government. 0344 499 1000. We'll also bring you all the news about the Russia report as it comes into us this morning. We expect it in the next couple of hours. And we will also do some homeschooling on the rebirth of the red kite with ornithology expert Stuart Winston. All that, plus your views, your news, uh, and your hopes and fears as well. You know what to do. You're the eyes and ears of the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Get in touch. Tell us what you're seeing, what you're doing, where you're going. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It's a beautiful sunny day outside. I'm looking out over London. I'm seeing uh, the Tower of London. I'm seeing some cumulonimbus clouds. I'm seeing the the cheese grater. I'm seeing the walkie-talkie building, bit of Canary Wharf, bit of the Shard. It's still way too quiet for my liking. And in fact, if anything, the roads this morning were even quieter than they were yesterday. Isn't it funny that when the weather gets better, fewer people somehow turn up to work? Fewer people feel like going into the office. Fewer people actually find themselves deciding to throw um, uh, their, their caution to the wind and actually decide maybe we'll just throw a sickie uh, and go off to the beach. I bet the beaches are going to be crowded today. I bet you any money you like. Let's talk to, to Bob Seeley, MP for the Isle of Wight, of course, a man uh, who has been talking about China uh, for quite some months and years. And we've spoken to him many times about it. Obviously, it is, has all sort of been kicked off by the Huawei problem. It was exacerbated uh, then by the Wuhan situation and the coronavirus outbreak, the pandemic that spread across the world. We've now got the Hong Kong situation. Yesterday, the British government government quite rightly in my view decided to suspend uh, any kind of extradition treaty with Hong Kong uh, so that China could not do anything to anybody uh, that we didn't think they should be allowed to do. They're now warning of repercussions, warning of dark days ahead. Uh, Bob a very good morning to you, welcome. 
Morning, good morning to your listeners. Is it listeners or is it listeners and viewers? Well, it's listeners and viewers now, I'm, I'm delighted to say, Bob. And, and, and uh, you're, they're going to be yeah. able to see you this morning as well. Okay, well, I apologise. I'm semi, I'm getting dressed, but it's not quite what it sounds like because I was on my bike. <laughs> well, okay. I was, my, I was cycling into London. Right. And I'm just uh, doing my tie and everything because I'm meeting the uh, US Secretary of State in about half an hour, so I need to look a little bit smarter. Excellent. Than I was about well, listen, what, what what a timely meeting that you and I are now having then, because of course, uh, yeah. if you're meeting the US Secretary of State uh, today, well, to tell him, Mike. Uh, well, what I'd, what I'd like you to say to him uh, is that we, as a country, uh, we certainly will stand firm with with anything um, that US foreign policy does with regard to China. Uh, but I think we all need to get a lot more independent of China, not just in terms of their politics, but also in terms of manufacturing, in terms of trade. And I wonder whether that could have some knock on effect to the trade deals that we can do with the US? I think it very potentially will. I mean, I'm a big fan of the UK having an independent foreign policy because I think the stronger they are, we are, the more likely we're willing to attract alliances, both old ones with the US and other countries and as well as new ones with places like South Korea and Japan. So, yeah, absolutely. We, we, need, to be, we need to be much more robust than we have been. I'm afraid to say the golden era was just a protected kowtow, in my opinion. So, We've got to remember that we have a lot of trade with China, a lot of investment in this country with China, and some going the other way. So we need a functioning relationship and a good one. And I'm afraid to say, I think for a lot of us, that relationship has been too one-sided. So we need to be realistic. China's a superpower. It's worthy of respect. It's done impressive things in its own country, but it's also done some very bad things in its own country as well. And I think we need to protect our interests and values more than we've done in the last few years. Yeah, and it's also doing some very bad things in Hong Kong, which technically speaking uh, is not actually its own country. Uh, neither is it yeah. our country either. But at the end of the day, Bob, you know, we have to stand firm. We have to take this stance, but it will not be without pain, I would imagine, in terms of their retaliatory tactics. Well, OK, that's a really good question, Mike. Let's take, for example, Huawei. If you say no to Huawei, it probably is going to cost us some jobs. But there was once upon a time a company in this country called Marconi. And when BT decided to not work with really Marconi anymore and work with Huawei, we lost thousands of jobs because Marconi doesn't exist anymore. Mm. There was a company in Canada called Nortel who were an original partner of Huawei all of their kit, bizarrely, seemed to turn up in, in, on Huawei systems. I wonder why that was. And you don't hear of Nortel anymore because they went bust. So there is going to be, there's a quid and there's a, uh, there's a quid pro quo here. So we may lose some jobs, but by supporting industries in this uh, country and in the West and in free democracies, we may create others. And it's important to remember that this own government, uh, about six months ago, when it put out a bunch of documents about telecom security, said that the Western advanced comms market was probably three years, three years away from collapse. So how many jobs, how many thousands of jobs would have been lost by that? Yes. I'll tell you what I found slightly uh, confusing was the Culture Secretary's speech in the House of Commons last week in which he said, basically, we're not going to buy any more Huawei products, uh, but we're not going to stop buying them until January. And then we're going to dismantle what's in the system already. But that's going to take seven years. I mean, why is it going to have to take such a long time and cost so much money to dismantle something that we hadn't really agreed to do yet? That's a really good point. And to be honest, I think some of us must be asking that question again later this year. It was a great first step from government, and I'm really grateful that they're listening to both the US, which is important because it's an ally, but they've also been talking to the Australians who banned Huawei themselves several years ago. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, but also that we, you know, they are listening to backbench members of parliament who are frankly going to uh, be quite demanding of what we wanted to do with Huawei later this year. Right. However, it's like a, like a mobile phone deal detail is worth reading and that's important and there are some concerns that we have and most importantly if i'm huawei and you're bt if i sell you kit now mike for your 5g network you can be putting that huawei kit in five six years time effectively you can use that huawei kit effectively for 5g and then you'll strip it out when you get 6g in eight eight ten years right. time. well quite so, i'd also i'd also be quite what, happy uh, if somebody uh, somewhere with the, the ability to make such decisions could actually put some 4g uh, into parts of southern kent and northern Sussex, because quite yeah, frankly, okay. you know, the number yeah. of times I have to talk to people in the car and then get cut off about every 50 yards on the way down is quite remarkable. Well, you make a point about the we badly need infrastructure and the infrastructure we need. Uh, actually, the priority and certainly this COVID crisis has proved it. 
the priority has been um, a broadband infrastructure we need above all, way more than, for example, HS2, mm. um, which are, are going ahead with better or worse. Um, <clears throat> uh, but yes, we also need 3G and 4G as well. And we need to we need to make that better. Uh, and frankly, that doesn't have to be with Huawei Kit. We have Western providers who haven't yet been driven into bankruptcy, Nokia and Ericsson and Samsung and Fujitsu and Nest and NEC. But if you talk to some of those providers like Samsung, they will say they can't enter this market because they are undercut by Huawei as a deliberate act of state Chinese policy. So effectively, you have China driving out Samsung from being able to provide business and opportunities in this country. So how many jobs has that cost us? So again, I think this is a complex and nuanced debate. And it's not just about China offering jobs. It's actually China has taken jobs away. And not just because we've outsourced, which were business decisions, but as a deliberate act of policy to try to collapse industries, not only in this country, but also in the West. And that is something that we have to think about much more seriously. And we haven't had an advanced telecoms policy, which has been one of the great scandals in the past few years. And I think one of the things that we'll be saying to Mike Pompeo, thank you very much for reminding me, is that actually we need to work together, collection maybe of five, ten, the world's leading democracies to get into in, into place a rules-based system for advanced comms but also other maybe rules about manufacturing and artificial or high-tech and artificial intelligence and facial technology and gate technology etc sort of walking how people walk um, and the rules by which that we protect that intellectual property from theft by other countries. Yes. And is there likely to be a conversation about whether there is an American telecoms company that can kind of step into the breach here, as it uh, were? Uh, yes. Let's, I mean, I, I hope so, but not because it's an American company. It's because it's another company. I mean, there are people saying you can't possibly build a 5G network with Nokia and Ericsson. Well, that's actually nonsense. France are doing just the same with two providers. So we don't actually need three providers. You need two. Three is better. Four is even better. But unfortunately, what the government hasn't, quite admitted yet is that well actually to be fair it has done um is that these companies have been driven out uh because they've been undercut by huawei what they haven't quite said is that it's a deliberate act of state policy by china which, mm. it, which it clearly is so if you don't have huawei in the system and you don't have huawei um, providing knockdown priced kit then you actually could have other providers in the system who can then compete fairly and honestly, and they can borrow money on open markets, they can you know, obey all the shareholder rules and Western rules of behavior, um, and they're not deliberately driving people out as a political decision. Right. Now, Dominic Raab also addressed the issue of human rights, not just with regard to China uh, and Hong Kong, but also with regard uh, to the Uyghurs uh, and, and legal sanctions possibly being put on China. Uh, will that come up, do you think, today? I'm sure I'm sure it will. And look, I'm, I'm not pretending that five years ago the, the situation the Uyghurs was concerning either me or lots of other people here. It's something that's relatively new. Mm. But if human rights are important somewhere, they should be consistently important everywhere. That, that doesn't mean we get everything perfect. We have a tendency to lecture people in Africa and we have a tendency to be a bit half hearted in Saudi and completely ignore it in China. And we have to be much more consistent. So I'm delighted that actually we do, you know, the government is pushing Saudi Arabia regarding Yemen and its bombing policy. But actually, we need to be raising these issues in China as well, especially because some of the allegations of what the Chinese state is doing to the Uyghurs is, is pretty is pretty repugnant. And this is the first time that birth, you know, significant birth sterilization or birth suppression policies have been practiced since World War II. Interestingly, Huawei in China used to boast of all its deals in Xinjiang province. Uh, with the Chinese state, building a surveillance system there. Um, it's much quieter about that. And if you go to some of those websites where that information was, surprise, surprise, the information's been taken down. Mm. So while we present themselves as a Western company, but in China, they're very much part and parcel of the surveillance system, which I think should be a significant concern. Hikvision, likewise. Hikvision is significantly owned, at least 30%, I think, by the People's Liberation Army. It's part and parcel, not only of the Chinese state, but of the Chinese army. And its kit is everywhere mm. in China, including in Xinjiang province. Again, do we want to be buying kit from people who are suppressing their own people and doing it in a way which is very morally troubling? Yes. And the same could be said about TikTok, which started off as a sort of a local, smallish, um, you know, social media outlet from China. But there are some people who worry um, that it's a far more yeah. connected organisation now to the sort of Central Communist Party. Well, again, if you look at TikTok statements, really fascinating. The Australian Strategic Policy Institute has done some great work on this. 
if you look at what they say to the Chinese state, that we're a fantastic communist, we have the Communist Party at every level of our organization, it's all wonderful. And then what they say to the Western world, that we're just a fantastic mm. high-tech startup, you know, it's, 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 you can say, well, of course, they've got to play the game in China. But really, uh, for me, these things are quite troubling. You know, if you've got people who've signed up to a one-party communist state agenda, which is quite oppressive, uh, which is doing bad things in Hong Kong, bad things in Xinjiang and elsewhere, then I think it is it is difficult to make that argument seriously that TikTok is is, is you know no different from Google or Facebook mm. or any of these other firms. It's not. That doesn't mean that there aren't problems with Google or Facebook because you know data privacy seems to be a dying issue in the West, and we need to be much more consistent. So it's not just about the Chinese state nicking or hoovering up our information, but it's also about Facebook and Google doing it legally, in part because of their their significant lobbying yeah. power. Indeed. So, you know, we need to understand there are problems across the board. Sure. And what about Russia? We were expecting to see the Russia report unbelievably this morning. I think I didn't mishear uh, the radio broadcast. I'm told that the Russians were interfering in the Stoke by-election. What's going on? Uh, oh, I don't know. I missed that. <laughs> Sorry. I, I saw the um, I saw they were interfering in the Scotch. I mean, my, the sad truth is if, if they were interfering in, in the Scottish uh, referendum, not in Brexit, I, I suspect left-wing journalists and the BBC and The Guardian will lose interest in the story very fast. Very fast. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's as serious, if not more so, um, but uh, because uh, the union between our countries is rather older than the European Union. Mm. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me if they lost interest now that it doesn't seem to have very much about, about no. Brexit. In it. But no, let's see. Let's but, see. But we should look, see. All, all, all this interference, it's all an argument for having a much more robust foreign lobbying law, which we need in this country. Absolutely right. And one final question for you, Bob, because you've got this very important meeting. It'd be great to hear from you uh, later on today, I'm sure. My constituents are the most important, but Secretary State comes after that. OK, well, well, I'm grateful for you putting it in order. Where, where do we stand there? Are we third, perhaps? Um, what about the business, that, the business that everybody's talking about, Bob, is the mask wearing? Friday is, the, is day one, supposedly, uh, of uh, the sort of enforcement of the wearing of masks. Do you think yeah. that's a mistake? Um, I, no, to be honest, I'll go with it because if it gets life back to normal, then then we just need to do what we need to do. And, and this has been difficult. We haven't had a dress rehearsal for this. And there are things that we did, we've done really well uh, on the economic front, protecting jobs and livelihoods. And there are things that we haven't done as well. And, you know, giving up on the trace and test scheme, tra the test and trace scheme early was clearly one of those. And we've got to learn for our lessons and we've got to make sure we don't we don't make the same mistakes again. So, look. We're doing pretty well at the moment with testing. Uh, that's going fantastically well. The support to the economy has been incredibly impressive and well done everyone involved in that, Prime Minister and Chancellor. What we need to do now is, is make sure we, you know, the sums still add up at the end of the day in our economy because on the Isle of Wight, we're going to be very badly affected because our tourism has been hit. We're hoping that's now going to pick up. Um, but clearly council revenues have been hit as well, which is going to impact services for vulnerable groups. So there's a lot, a lot of work to be done in getting back to where we were. And it really worries me. And just walking around London and, you know, on the island, you know, the island comes alive in summer. We have festivals every week, we have village fates with people on the beaches, families come down. And it's just incredibly sad to see that not happening this year. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Bob, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Bob Seeley, MP for the Isle of Wight there. Uh, his constituents come first. Then he's off to see uh, Mike Pompeo, the US Secretary of State. Uh, and of course, uh, we will be here until one o'clock discussing not only what Bob just said, not only what's likely to happen at that meeting, uh, but also finding out what the Russia report is going to say. And also talking to you a great deal about a great many things. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. Lots for us to be getting on with, and lots of you want to talk to me about China, about our relationship with China, about Hong Kong, and of course about the public sector pay rise story, because uh, for a lot of people, uh, it's going to mean this. Uh, if you're um, receiving something like £30,599, um, you will get an extra £1,000 a year. A police officer on £32,000 uh, will earn something like £800 more. Teachers get a bit more than uh, police. Not quite sure how that works, but we shall see. Let's find out from Ben uh, Zarenka what he makes of it all. Ben, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Now, I've had quite a few people uh, getting in touch with me this morning from the private sector saying, you know, it's all very well paying these people for the public sector. But what about us? And I suppose they do have a point, don't they? They have a point in a sense that clearly lots of people in the private sector are having a tough time right now. Lots of people, we know that unemployment's on the up. Lots of people are struggling to make ends meet. But you've got to view this within the context of the last decade, where public sector wages have grown much more slowly than those have in the private sector. On average, we had pay freezes, we had 1% uh, 
public sector pay caps. And so public sector pay has actually fallen behind private sector pay and relatively is now its lowest level in decades. And what the government's done today is accept the recommendations of what are called pay review bodies, which take into account the challenges around recruitment, retention and so on, that money they think is needed to fill those gaps. So they accepted those recommendations and that does look like this year, public sector wages will grow faster than those in the private sector. But that comes after a decade where the opposite has been. Yes. But of course, traditionally, and I go back a much further way than just the last decade, public sector pay was always less than private sector pay because the belief was there was that, you know, your, the job security was better. Your pay package was probably better. Your benefits were better. Your pension age was, was probably younger. And so all of the, the, the things that were not about just the pay were all better uh, than, than what you would get out of the, of the private sector. There are clearly differences between the public and private sector. One of the things you mentioned there, I think, is really important to bring out, which is the difference, not just in the amount of pay you get in your monthly pay packet, but also in the pension you have access to. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely true that public sector pensions are and continue to be more generous than those in the private sector. But there's not that's not the only difference, though, right? Because lots of public sector workers are highly qualified professionals, they're doctors, they're teachers and so on. And average earnings in the public sector are accordingly slightly higher. And that's not the only thing that matters. And I think that the issue here is that if the government wants to put more money into our public services, you want to have world-class health service, world-class schools and so on, and you want to keep the staff needed to, to fill those public services, sometimes you have to pay for it. And that might mean more generous public sector pay awards. I don't think anyone would be telling me that we've got world-class education in this country, would you? Uh, I'm not a teacher. I'm not an education expert. I wouldn't want to comment, but I know that the government well, I've got is children. I can, money tell you, I've got, I can tell you it's not true. But I mean, that's not the issue, really. The point is, is that the public sector as a whole is a very great many different businesses. And of course, um, you know, the, the medical business requires an awful lot of very highly skilled and highly paid doctors. But it also requires uh, a lot of low skilled workers as well to do all sorts of other jobs. And then when you talk about, say, for example, local councils, um, you know, it's very well regarded that there's an awful lot of people working in those council jobs who are not particularly highly skilled but they're sort of middle management and there's a very there's a sense from the private sector that there's an awful lot of sort of bloated uh, middle management people working in the civil service working in the councils and not doing what you would regard as you know incredibly highly skilled jobs i think there's two things to draw out from that first of all since uh, the coalition government was elected in 2010 there have been really quite deep cuts made in particular to local government and they've made quite substantial efficiency gains and they've managed to, for the most part, maintain services at probably the same level of quality with far less resources. So if there was lots of fat to be trimmed and if there was lots of bloated middle management, as you like to call it, I think a lot of that will have been cut away. The second thing is you're right to draw attention to local government because one of the groups of workers missing today was workers in social care who are employed either by local authorities or by private companies paid by local mm. authorities to provide services. So they're not covered by today's pay award because this is about central government workers, if you like. So I think the key thing to look out for in the months to come will be, is there more money available for local government, which they can use to then give those care workers on the front line a pay award, which they quite obviously deserve, but they need to have the resources available to, to be able to do that. Well, I'm rather hoping that as a result of what's happened during this whole um, coronavirus lockdown scenario, that the care sector is very much examined anyway, Ben, and, and, and kind of re- Re reorganized if you like because it clearly doesn't work for an awful lot of people who work in it and it clearly doesn't work for an awful lot of people who need to be uh, cared for by it you know there's an awful lot of profiteering going on by private individuals there's an awful lot of uh, sort of exploitation you might say of, the, of, of cheap labor and it seems to me that somebody needs to get a grip of the care sector and, and improve it really i couldn't agree more i think that the problem of social care has been one that we've been grappling with for decades and governments have continually pass the book and kick the issue into the long grass and it's about time we had some political will and some political uh, desire to get it fixed it's not going to please everybody but we need to reform the system it desperately needs reform it desperately needs more funding and i agree with you i hope that one uh, positive thing that comes from all of this is that we properly address issues in our care sector yeah and just looking at the way that they're structuring um because uh, i'm not entirely sure how they've come about this particular arrangement the way they're structuring the pay rise itself it seems as though a teacher will get a slightly more uh of 3.1 percent increase uh than doctors and dentists who are on 2.8 police on 2.5 how would they have arrived at those percentages as, as i mentioned earlier these are the recommendations of uh, the pay review bodies there are different bodies for different parts of the public sector 
and they go away and assess all of the evidence, do lots of detailed research, and they work out where the pressures are, where the shortages are, and then they make recommendations about pay awards for different, not just different sectors, not just prison service versus teachers versus doctors, but also within the NHS, for example, we need to target pay increases here or there. So what's happened today is that the pay review bodies have made recommendations and the government has just decided to accept them. In the past, that wasn't always the case. Sometimes they would recommend we need 2% this year and the government would say we're only willing to give one. This year, they've taken the recommendations and accepted them across the board. And because they've made different recommendations, that's why the pay awards for the police aren't quite the same as those for the judiciary or for teachers and so on. Yeah, it seems odd, though, doesn't it? Because particularly of, of late, the police have been called upon to do some quite extraordinary things and put themselves in quite a lot of frontline danger. And yet they get less money than teachers who, for a large section of them anyway, and I'm not I'm trying to tar everybody with the same brush, haven't actually worked through this period. Uh, I think teachers have been working through this period. Clearly, they've been providing online lessons and they've been many of them going into school to teach the children of key workers, for example. Uh, I think, but well, they, haven't, they about... haven't all been doing that. I can tell you. Sure. Okay. But this isn't just about uh, pay this year, and this isn't just about response to the pandemic. The peer review bodies have been working this for months. This is also about not just saying thank you for all your hard work during the coronavirus crisis. It's also about saying we need to properly reward our public sector workers, and we need to provide pay necessary to recruit and attract the quality of people we want. So looking ahead, we may well decide that given the extra jobs the police are being asked to do, given the extra level of danger working in NHS, for example, we may decide that we need to pay these people more and they deserve it. And that will be a decision for the government to make. But at the moment, this is as much about saying we need to give people pay rises to keep track with inflation as it is about Thank you for your work in the crisis. The trouble, of course, for this government uh, now and maybe for future governments is that because they've been giving so much money away uh, to so many different groups of people um, whenever they've been asked, it's very difficult for them now to stand up to any pay request, isn't it? I think it's certainly far easier to turn on the spending taps than it is to turn them off. Um, I think that this isn't the first time public sector workers have had a pay award in excess of inflation. This happened in the last couple of years. And there's been a great deal of pressure on this given the number of vacancies of the nurses in the NHS, given the struggles to recruit teachers, particularly teachers for maths and science subjects, there's been pressure for pay rises for quite some time. I think looking ahead, in the, after the pandemic is behind us and we're kind of dealing with the fallout, the key question for the government will be, how do we get our public finances back on track? Are we going to have to think about making difficult spending cuts or tax rises? And public sector pay will form part of that equation, I'm sure, and there'll be no easy options for the Chancellor. No, and what's your view? Uh, ben, of, of what the government's options will be in terms of raising taxes, because clearly they will not want to kind of upset their apple cart, as it were. They certainly won't want to go after, I wouldn't think, the sort of the, the hardworking middle classes who elected them. So what they might have to do is find interesting and imaginative ways of taxing other people or other things in order to try and uh, get some revenue going. Well, first things first, I think that the time for tax rises is not this year and it may not be next year. The first thing the government should be focusing on is supporting the economy and helping it bounce back as quick as possible from the uh, aftermath and the fallout from the pandemic. But looking further ahead, I think that there will be a, a hole in the public finances, particularly if we want to run a more generous welfare state permanently, we're going to need to think about how we raise more tax. The challenging thing for the government is that two thirds of all tax revenues come from three big taxes, income tax, VAT, national insurance, and most people pay them to varying extents, but they fall on most people in the economy. And the difficulty is two things. The government has promised not to raise any of those taxes. And secondly, they do fall on a broader swathe of the population, as you say, the hardworking middle classes. But it's difficult to see how they could raise any substantial sums of the amounts required just by getting creative with other taxes around the edges. There's certainly a role to think about how we tax wealth, in particular how we tax housing, uh, council tax and so on. But the sums required, it's difficult to see how they could be raised without thinking about the three big taxes of income tax, national insurance or VAT. Yeah. Well, the big problem I see as well, which we discussed in, in, in a large part on my show yesterday, is the city of London itself. You know, not just the people working in it, but the businesses operating in it, because at the moment there's literally nobody open. You know, yes, the, the, the public have come back into work in small numbers. And yes, the restaurants and the bars have started to reopen. But in terms of the, the incredible revenue from taxes of all kinds that the government gets because of the, the sort of the city's financial heart at the moment, that's just simply not operating. So they must be losing an absolute fortune right now. 
I think that's true of lots of city centre hubs where there's lots of businesses concentrate, lots of office workers. If you think about all yeah, the but I'm thinking specifically. So but I'm thinking specifically about London, which provides a very large percentage of the gross tax profits this government actually takes in. That's right. The city of London does provide a great deal of tax revenues, but I think a lot of that work will be going on with workers working from home. A lot of that business activity won't be stopping. It might decline somewhat, but I think that uh, it won't be. Just because the city of London itself is a ghost town right now doesn't mean that there'll be no tax revenues at all coming in. No, but they'll the, be they'll be very heavily reduced, though. I think they will be reduced, yeah. And that's part of the problem this year is that you've both got a huge package of spending to try and support the economy, the furlough scheme and so on. You've also got a fall in tax revenues as there's reduced levels of economic activity, but also businesses have been allowed to defer uh, VAT payments and business rates payments and so on. So you've got the double whammy of higher spending and lower taxes, which is what's blown a hole in the public finances. The key thing for the government will be, do those tax revenues bounce back, whether that's in the city of London, whether that's in the broader economy. The key question will be, to how quickly can we recover and do we recover to where we were? Or is there some amount of productivity in the economy that we've permanently lost? Yes, and that is the worry, I suppose. But listen, thank you very much indeed. Ben Zaranko, Research Economist for the Institute for Fiscal Studies, explaining there why uh, certain percentages are higher than certain other percentages. I'm not quite sure why you would recommend that teachers make more money percentage-wise as a pay rise than police officers. It seems a bit uh, skewed to me, that. But you may have a different view. 03444991000. If you work in the private sector, you're going to be pretty cheesed off, I would imagine, uh, because it's all very well saying, oh, well, the public sector haven't had a pay rise for a while. Uh, they had one two years ago. Uh, they haven't had much many pay rises in 10 years. Well, I know plenty of people who have had no pay rises in 10 years, quite frankly. And uh, because they're in the private sector they ain't going to get one anytime soon either this is talk radio talk radio it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We're going to talk to Di Davis, who is the former head of Royal Protection. Um, after that remarkable introduction, I'm not sure what else I can say. Di, very good afternoon to you. Uh, good afternoon to you from sunny Wales. Well, listen, you say it's sunny Wales. And a lot of people are not very happy in sunny Wales at the moment because you're not allowed out of it, are you? Oh, no, we are now, yes. Uh, I, we are allowed out. Uh, we don't have to wear face masks just yet. And so it'll be very interesting what developments come. But... Um, I agree with the police commissioner down in Devon, Cornwall, which says this is not a role for the police to enforce. But one, we don't enforce shoplifting anymore. So how on earth are we going to <laughs> actually? How are we going to actually enforce people not wearing masks? I'm just looking at a queue now outside Waitrose, where I've just been. Yes. Even though I'm a pensioner, uh, can I all afford to go there? And not one is wearing a face mask. So it tells you something, I suppose. But. You know, it's the lack of consistency across so many different of these rules that yes. come out and get me. And I think I think it gets a lot of people as well. I'm all for, you know, self-choice. If you want to wear a mask, good for you. Yes. But the nonsense that, uh, you know, the people serving you don't have to wear a mask. And I just don't find the consistency. Where's the science in all this so-called? Because, you know, in Wales, you can have three pubs closed in one high street and yeah. on the border... An English pub open. Right. That's not science. That's nonsense. Well, exactly. I mean, I saw a story uh, when the pubs were opening in England, but not in Wales, uh, where there's one guy who's on the border near Shrewsbury uh, who's got a car park, which happens to be in England, but the main body of the pub is actually in Wales. So he couldn't yeah. open up, even though he could have quite happily served people sitting at tables in the car park. 
Well, where's the science in that? You know, well, there isn't I understand any. You, yeah, I understand you try and put a regular, but you know, this, going back to the subject of, uh, of face masks in shops, no, I don't think the police can enforce it. And I, I think yet again, you know, there'll be inconsistencies anyway. Some forces are draconian. Some officers have this issue that I'm a police officer. I can I can find people left, right, and centre, and others are more tolerant and, and sensible. So. Again, there's no consistency, and again, that just shows how daft possibly making it compulsory is. Well, this is why I don't think it will be compulsory, because in the end, certainly when it comes to public transport in this in this city of ours, in London, you are allowed various exemptions. One of the exemptions is that it makes you anxious to wear a mask, right? So if you're walking onto a tube train and some police officer stops you and says you should wear a mask, you say, well, it actually makes me anxious. He has to let you get on without one. Well, that just illustrates the nonsense, doesn't it, really? Well, it does, rather. At the end of the day, if it's shown beyond all reasonable doubt that say, having face masks, this horrible, horrible thing, uh, works, but, uh, you know, we've had four months without waiting. Why are we now having to do it? You know, if it could be shown, yes, it saves hundreds of lives, but in Wales, you know, we've lost 1,534 people. 85% of those were in homes because yeah. the Welsh government cocked it up. Right. Now, if you put it on a scale and a graph, you, you just wouldn't do it, would you? And I just don't find the evidence. And being an ex-copper, evidence is what I go on. And the evidence, certainly here in Wales, where we're a bit like Sweden, we're well-spaced, most of us certainly in the north here, then I just think there is some daftness somewhere. And, and, and I, the other thing I'd say is how many flipping professors are there and experts? They're coming out of every woodwork, aren't they? You can't turn without a professor. How many professors are on the public payroll? Well, I'll no tell you what, there's, what, there's, there's, there's so one expensive. or two of them. There's one or two of them are on TV so often. I don't know when they do any professing uh, or indeed well, any virology. Yeah, but there's, there's a professor for every conceivable thing now, isn't there? Um, well, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if you get a face mask professor popping up at some point. Well, I wouldn't be surprised either. The doom mongers amongst us are just dreadful, but we seem to forget all these thousands and thousands of people being unemployed by the scare tactics. And I'm sorry, we've got to take a risk. Life yeah. is risk. And I think common sense has gone out of the window in so many of these dictates. Yes. And I think the politicians are loving it. And uh, up until a, a week ago, none of them were wearing face masks. And now they are. I, I just can't make it up. No. But the other thing that's also very strange here, Di, is that they've, they've said that if you work in the shop, you don't have to wear one. <laughs> well, there you go. Right? I, I, I rest my case, Your Worship. <laughs> now, the other problem I would say, presumably for, for, for guys like yourself, who, when you were in the force, I mean, you want to avoid creating an incident which could declare itself to be a public order incident. You know, so if there's an issue whereby you think the easy course of action here is to let that guy walk into a shop without a mask on rather than to try and stop him, then yeah. you're going to let that happen, aren't you? Well, not in my day, because uh, being daft and stupid and had a fractured spine because I did tackle people. Uh, no, I tackle it. If it's safe, in brackets, if it's balanced and safe to do so. But, you know, we haven't tackled thousands and thousands of Black Lives Matter, have we? we very easy to pick on you and I as law-abiding yeah. citizens. What we don't often do is pick on bullies or those who, who share force or those who are of certain religion who gather at a wedding for two of hundred or three hundred. Mm. We don't enforce that because, oh, you might have set racial niceties. Yes. I say I don't care what colour you are, where you are, I'll enforce the law where it's sensible and mm. practical to do so. Exactly. Well, I mean, the first, the first marches that were going around in London were done on the day that the new law came into force, which said that you couldn't um, gather in groups of more than six. And that well, was completely and utterly ignored, not only by the marchers, but also by the police. Well, I know, and, and I wish we'd all start. I'll tell you what, if there's a march against the brutality in China and, and, and Russia and other uh, communist states, then I'll go on that march. Mm. Uh, we just, as I've said on your programme, we're so inconsistent. Where are the thousands marching against China and what they're doing to their citizens there? Uh, kneeling so-called on a neck would, yeah. would pale into insignificance. Well, quite. I and mean, you we're make not, a, you, we're not tackling it, are we? You make a very good point. That's the, that's the problem, isn't it? That these laws that they keep changing and bringing in and relaxing and 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 sort of you know finessing, you know, are not. I mean, because to me, it's not really a law if you can't enforce it and if nobody's doing it. 
No, and coming back to your point, you know, this is a daft law, and daft laws can't be supported, uh, in my opinion. And that's the bottom line. Until the evidence shows us this is absolutely necessary to save this very small minority, me included, i.e. I'm nearly 70, um, then, okay, so be it. It is crazy. And I just say, who's going to pay for all this? Yes. You know, but as I say, we can't we haven't got police officers. You try and make a shoplifter these days. And my son is a policeman in London. It's impossible. They won't mm. turn out for you. And yet somebody in government thinks it can't be pretty Patel because normally she's quite sensible. Yeah. So who which which one came up with this brilliant idea? Was well, it Boris? Well, I I don't know because two days before the government announced it was going to happen, Michael Gove was on television saying it wasn't going to happen. So there's clearly yeah, some form of uh, yeah, normally I think there's, there's there's clearly some form I think there's some form of friction between the chief medical officer and his team and the politicians in Downing Street because it would seem to me uh, that Chris Whitty uh, and also Sir Patrick Valance are both uh, opposed to the lifting of the lockdown. Uh, they keep saying that they don't think it's a good idea to, to, to allow people to go about their business and as if nothing was wrong. They keep talking about a second wave. You know, it's almost as if they don't want us to get out of it. Well, again, I make no comment about their uh, their abilities, but clearly, uh, if you look back to what they were saying in March and what we're saying now, there are a lot of inconsistencies there, which which give me rise for concern. As I keep saying, as an investigator, I keep looking for evidence and a structure. And I don't find evidence or structure apparent in so much of what we're being told by these so-called experts. Mm. And, you know, and these predictions of mass deaths, well, they haven't. Is that because of lockdown? I don't know. I'm not clever enough to know that. What I do know is that uh, if you put most of the deaths on a scale, on a map, particularly here in Wales or indeed Scotland or Northern Ireland, it would be it wouldn't even rise yeah. there. So we are destroying people's lives and the number of children and my big issue apart from talking to you is child protection. Yes. And the number of children and abuse and I was on Welsh radio last week talking about the number of assaults and abuse of children have gone up hundred and fifty percent. The number of voyeurs watching the crime scenes which are pornographic films of children that's what's happening, mm. and yet, for the sake of protecting a very small minority of people, and I'm told the statistics now are less deaths in the last six weeks than happened in the summertime with flu. So, you know, who's telling the truth? And I just don't know, and I suspect a lot of your listeners don't know. No, that's the thing. I mean, what is the, real, the, the, the situation in Wales? Is Wales going to have the same law in place on Friday or not, on masks? Well, uh, if you don't have much faith in Boris, trust me, I don't have any faith in the guy we've got in charge because he uh -huh. can't even dress properly. He can't <laughs> speak properly. He, he, how anybody can vote for a politician who looks, dresses and sounds like that is beyond me. And I'm not being political, whether he was a Tory, Labour or whatever. But he comes across... He doesn't as, seem terribly popular either. Well, I don't know about that. I'm just saying that the man is so cautious. He was a social worker. Right. He was a professor of social sciences. And, and God help us. Loudly. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's got no, he's got no experience of real life, then, presumably. But, well, I mean, he's this got is... a real, no experience of, of operational sensibility or being in real crisis. I've walked all over the world on crisis management. Trust me, I wouldn't trust him to see me across to, and get a deck chair. <laughs> Listen, Di, as ever, brilliant to speak to you. Di Davis there, uh, former head of Royal Protection, a po proper police officer who knows what's what and knows when to carry out laws, knows when uh, to make sure that people are obeying those laws and knows when to take a step back. And his view uh, is rather like the Devon police and Cornwall police who are saying, we're not going to enforce this mask wearing uh, because there's no point. In the same way that some shops are saying we're not going to uh, get involved in telling people to wear masks either. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, uh, it's time for our homeschooling section because this has become very popular. 12.30 every day we have the news and then we have a bit of homeschooling where we learn something that we didn't know. And it was a big story yesterday um, about the reintroduction of a type of bird in this country uh, which was thought to maybe become extinct about 30 years ago. And a project was launched to save save the red kite and it's worked so let's talk to Stuart Winter who is of course uh, our favourite ornithologist uh, Sunday Express nature columnist as well Stuart very good afternoon to you good afternoon Mike how things yeah very good indeed very good indeed I'm I'm slightly disappointed I'm looking at a, um, uh, I should have known better really I'm looking at a, a story on the BBC website about this from yesterday and all the pictures are in black and white 
um, on their website. So unfortunately, I haven't been able to find a picture. Uh, I've now found one of a very, they're very beautiful looking birds. These red kites. They have a sort of obviously a reddish tinge to them, but quite a sort of um, quite a sharp beak as well. Exactly. I mean, they are birds of prey, but they are um, a very special bird of prey. So as far as the colour is concerned, they've got a lovely foxy red tail which is deeply forked, mm. and that's the thing that um, people, if they're looking up in the sky, may well detect first of all. But they're large birds, I mean, from one tip of the wing to the other. They're six foot, six foot plus. Wow, that's huge, and isn't it? The, the, the great thing about them is, back in medieval times, they were the street cleaners of London. They would um, fly around and scavenge, a bit like vultures in the tropics, yeah. and played a really important part of keeping the streets clean. And then over a period of time, through the medieval times, after plagues, etc., etc., they their numbers began to crash. And then back in uh, by the time we reached the nineteenth um, century, mm. they were being persecuted for some reason. Um, landowners never liked them because they were birds with sharp beaks. Right. And they were thought to um, raid ki- uh, chicken coops. I was going to say, were they a danger to sort of other wildlife as well? Far from it. I mean, they're very passive birds. Although they've got a sharp beak and they've got talons, they they prefer carrion. So um, okay. one of the things that's actually happened. So we were talking thirty years ago this uh, this month. They were introduced not far from where I'm where I live now, right, up in the Chiltern Hills. Mm. And they were released there, and they've been very, very successful in um, picking up roadkill, especially. So all those dead bunnies that um, live on the roads are basically just um, perfect kite food. And so we've seen from just near High Wycombe, um, they've spread across to my part of the Chilterns. I live just north of Luton. Right. And I've been out this morning and, you know, what should be casting its shadows overhead, but um, a couple of red kites wow. have just finished breeding and the young birds are now on the wing. So I would say that basically there, there's uh, 10 sites around Britain where they've effectively been released. So you're talking about the, um, the Chilterns, Mid Wales, right to the north of Scotland, across the Midlands, Yorkshire, and uh, Northern Ireland. It's well worth, if you see a large bird flying around, mm. there's every chance it's going to be a red kite. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen one because, I mean, I see the odd hawk. Um, when I'm when I'm in Sussex, and it looks more to me it's a little kestrel size than anything else. I don't think I've seen anything as big as a red kite. Are they are they pretty widespread all over the country now? Then? They are. I mean, I would think that. Um, I mean, I was recently bird watching up in uh, Suffolk, and they were floating around over there, which is you know sort of a hundred plus miles from their release site in the Chiltern. Mm. I would think up in the Shard, if you were standing out there with a pair of binoculars on any given day, you could well see one sort of flying. Okay. Yeah, perhaps passing over Hampstead Heath or right. um, other areas of woodland over London. Mm. Interesting, because I'm reading in this piece that I've got here uh, that they had declined to such an extent in the 80s that they were one of only three globally threatened species in Britain. That's correct. They, I mean, at, in 1930, there, I think there was only one female breeding kite mm. in Wales. And when I started birdwatching in the sort of um, late 60s, they were confined to a, you know, a patchwork of woodland in the deepest wells. And they, as you say, they were globally threatened. And I mean, I don't think if there was ever, um, if they never carried out this uh, reintroduction program, we may well be looking at them as um, you know, going the way of the dodo. Mm. I think today we've got about 10% of the world population living in the UK. And that, those numbers are going up year on year. I think they estimate about 1,800 nesting pairs. Mm. That's an awful lot, isn't it? So, I mean, as, as far as this um, sort of reintroduction program was concerned, it's really worked well. And um, what do you think the success is, is, is down to of that? I, I think the success is mainly that people do like wildlife these days. It's something we've seen in lockdown that, um, you know, wildlife, be it plants, small animals, birds, bees... That they, they brighten the day, and I think people appreciate that. So we're living in good times for wildlife generally. Yeah. And the other thing is that, I mean, unfortunately, we, we do live in a dirty society. And one sad story, I was driving through Luton the other week, and a red kite came down in the middle of a busy road. Someone had left a certain fast food wrapper there, yeah. and the poor kite, they've got very large wings. It takes them a bit of time to take flight. It tried to get off the ground, and was duly run over by a lorry. Oh, but going back, asking, you know, why are they successful? We do live in a society where we do throw away our um, chicken carcasses, etc., etc. Yeah. 
and that makes very good food for um, for these scavenging birds. Yeah, right. And also, people have kind of stopped the process, I hope anyway, of egg collecting, haven't they? Very much so. I mean, I think egg collecting now is sort of verboten. Back in Victorian times and into the early part of the 20th century, um, a red kite egg would have been something that would have been highly prized. And I would think that, um, yeah, there must probably, if you go around a few museums in the country, they, they can bring out these dusty shelves of um, bird's eggs. And the red kite would have been the egg that every, every egg collector wanted to have. Mm. Yeah, absolutely right. And, and so uh, what's good at this time of year to be watching out for? Because we always like to ask you that question because mm. kids are out now coming out. So I think tomorrow for a lot of kids, that's their last day of school, if they're actually even in school. But even if it's their last virtual day of school, you know, they'll be looking for stuff to do. Well, bird-wise, it's traditionally the July is regarded as the traditional quietest time of the year. Right. And the season has just gone from the breeding season. It's through high summer. So lots of birds are actually um, changing their feathers. They're molting at the moment. Mm. So they, um, birds like robins are hidden away and they want to grow their new set of feathers so that it will last into the winter and keep them nice and warm. Right. But the things to look out for at the moment, I think, are butterflies. We've got a fantastic uh, number of butterflies on the wing at the moment. Yes, you know, I've noticed that down in, uh, in Sussex. There's been loads of butterflies in the garden. That's it. I mean, we've had perfect growing conditions for, for flowers, yeah. and uh, I think that you know, the more blossoms are out there, it's better for bees. But the, the ones to really look out for are, are different types of blue butterflies. So there's yeah. a, a few, I don't know if people looking out there, if you've got that beautiful color blue sky, there's a bird called, uh, there's a butterfly called the common blue that's mm. wings are just that's all the same color as a. Um, an Italian football shirt, if okay. people know that. It's you know, amazing. So, the um, Azure. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Your Italian's better than mine. <laughs> and the, the other thing are plants as well. I mean, flowers are in sort of full bloom at the moment. Yeah. So if, you go, you know, if you've got a meadow near you, go around, have a look, look at the plants, and then you'll see butterflies. And there's a good chance um, you might see birds like swifts and mm. swallows floating around. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a couple of red admirals um, two weekends in a row. They come out at about five o'clock and they do this kind of dance. They fly around together, just dancing together almost. I presume yeah, it's some I mean, kind of mating ritual. I mean, the males are, can be quite competitive against each other and the, the females are flighty as well. So um, it is, you know, breeding time for a lot of animals. It certainly is. Well, listen, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Stuart Winter there with uh, the uh, lowdown on the red kite, which I didn't realise was such a big bird. Six foot is the wingspan across. I don't think I've ever seen one, uh, but I would very much like to. Um, looks very much like a bird of prey. And uh, they are now, we are happy to say, uh, happily ensconced, re-ensconced back in the UK, uh, where they were thought to be possibly dying out altogether about 30 years ago. Just goes to show you, if you put enough work into something, uh, you can actually get the right result, which is always good, isn't it? Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.